this month on Security Management Highlights. The longer attackers have access to your network, the longer they have time to lay the groundwork for a sophisticated campaign that can really do a lot of damage. Do you know if a hacker is lurking in your corporate network? Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates discusses the length of time it takes organizations to detect a data breach and why slow detection time can be damaging. In the wake of an active shooter event, how can police distinguish the bad guy from citizens lawfully carrying guns? The officers I spoke to said working in high-pressure conditions with citizens that open carry isn't new to them. Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa explains how open carry laws in the United States have been affected by recent violent shootings and high-profile events. Plus, we spent over 80 hours in the, the months leading up to the convention working with the Secret Service. Paul Steiner, CPP, Security Manager at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum in Cleveland, Ohio, tells us about the security preparations leading up to the Republican National Convention. I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. Hackers often have hundreds of days to steal corporate data before the breach is discovered. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates joins us to talk about how companies can protect their data from these low and slow attacks. Hi, Megan. Thanks for stopping by the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. In this month's cybersecurity column, you cite some frankly shocking numbers about the length of time it takes companies to detect a data breach. How long does it take on average for the attacks to be discovered, and why is this such a problem? Shocking is right, Holly. The global average for time to detection for a data breach is 149 days, and that is significantly lower than the average for Asian companies, which is 520 days, and companies in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, which are at 469 days. To put this in perspective, Cisco's own time to detection has ranged from 15 to 13 days in the past year. And this is a problem because it gives attackers more time in your network. Think of it like a burglar who breaks into your home, you know, when you're not there. The more time that they have in your house, the more damage they can do, the more things that they could steal. So a cyber attack is the same way. The longer attackers have access to your network, the longer they have time to lay the groundwork for a sophisticated campaign that can really do a lot of damage. Examples of this are the latest string of ransomware attacks that we've seen over the past year, which are expected to continue. And Cisco's 2016 mid-year cybersecurity report, which I referenced for my article, said, you know, this giant window of time, quote, allows attackers to quietly lay the groundwork for their campaigns, strike when they are ready, and ultimately succeed in generating revenue from their efforts. So like you compared it to a robber who's in your house for a long time, you know, their probably tactics are to remain quiet, maybe to wear dark clothing. What about cyber attackers? What kind of methods do they use to avoid detection? Yeah, that's a great reference, Holly. You know, attackers sort of use that same method when it comes to a cyber attack. You know, they don't want to be noticed by you. So they're going to use things like cryptocurrency, Tor, HTTPS, encrypted traffic, so you can't see what they're doing on your network, and transport layer security. And this is also a big problem because exploit kit authors are also enabling attackers' success by quickly reverse engineering patches and exploiting unmanageable vulnerability disclosures. So they're getting fast 
master at creating these exploits that can take advantage of vulnerabilities. And this really places a lot of pressure on companies who are getting the brunt of this because there are now so many vulnerabilities for them to defend against. And we're currently on pace for more than 10,000 vulnerabilities to be disclosed this year. And I spoke with Jason Brevnik of Cisco. He's a principal engineer for the Cisco Security Business Group. And he explained that all of these factors are giving attackers an edge over defenders who are really struggling to keep pace. So what can companies and individuals do to reduce the attack surface and decrease the likelihood of a successful breach? I know a lot of these are probably cybersecurity best practices, but when it comes to protecting data in particular so that it can't be stolen, what can people do? Yeah, so this is one thing that I talked to John Weathington. He's vice president of America's for Ground Labs, a security software company about. And he said, you know, one of the best things that companies can do is just to map their data. A lot of companies don't know where their data is or even what they have. So how can they possibly defend it against somebody attacking it or stealing it? He really recommends data mapping, you know, figuring out where your data is, who has access to it, and what sort of security controls you already have in place. And then figuring out classifying what data is most sensitive and how to really protect that data from being, you know, stolen in case of a cyber attack. Really sensitive data would include things like intellectual property and your trade secrets, things that you wouldn't want your competitors to get a hold of. And also, you know, customer information, personally identifying information, things like that. So, Megan, finally, we know human error can often lead to negative consequences in the realm of cybersecurity, but are there technological tools that can be employed to help protect against these attacks? Yes, there actually are. And the key from my sources that I spoke to for the piece is to look at the technology that you're using and make sure you're leveraging it to protect your data. Make sure that it's not leaving data exposed based on how it's interacting with other technology that's in your network. And you also want to make sure when you're purchasing technology to make sure that the technology you're purchasing is going to talk to the other technology you're already using in your network. Jason Brevnik called this creating an integrated defense. For instance, a solution that would be designed so you would know that a firewall allowed a connection through it by a user that then communicated with three other systems in your network to eventually place a piece of malware in your network. So a system that can detect unusual behavior and then communicate within the system all the different aspects so that no one's left out of the loop and it alerts you right away that, oh, this is unusual and this is how this person gained access to my system. So that you can then detect the breach and take action hopefully much quicker than the 520 days median time it takes some companies to detect a data breach. Yes, that's well over a year. So hopefully businesses can take some advice from this interview. Thanks so much, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. When protesters marched through downtown Dallas, Texas, as part of the Black Lives Matter movement on June 7th this year, 100 police officers were assigned to protect the event. But gunfire targeting the officers erupted, causing chaos and confusion about who the bad actors were, as many citizens were lawfully carrying firearms. This and other recent cases of violence with guns point to how open carry laws can lead to confusion in an active shooter situation. Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa stops by to tell us more. Hi Lily, welcome to the podcast. Hey Holly. Lily, how did law enforcement approach the issue of citizens legally touting guns ahead of the U.S. Republican National Convention in Cleveland, Ohio, which is an open carry state? 
Ohio is one of the 45 states with some sort of open carry law, and officials knew that citizens would want to exercise their right to carry at the convention. The day before the convention, the president of the Cleveland Police Patrolmen's Association urged Ohio's governor, John Kasich, to suspend open carry laws during the event, citing concerns about copycat attacks following the Baton Rouge shooting. Kasich's office rejected the request. At the convention, there were two levels of security. One secured area right outside of the convention center, which was manned by Secret Service, and no firearms were allowed in that space or the building itself. Outside of that area, including public demonstration spaces, open carry was allowed. So as you said, Kasich's office rejected the measure to suspend the laws during the event. What other rules were put into place for the RNC to ensure everyone's safety? Well, the officers I spoke to said working in high-pressure conditions with citizens that open carry isn't new to them. Their rule of thumb is to be highly visible in order to reassure people that nothing dangerous will take place. They also go for a soft approach and engage people who are carrying weapons to communicate that they're present to allow everyone to exercise their rights. Now, you write that after the Dallas shootings that killed five police officers, law enforcement struggled to appease citizens' Second Amendment rights while trying to identify the shooter or other potential violent actors. What did that city's police chief do to try to address this difficult issue? Dallas Police Chief David Brown was pretty candid on the issue. He said that officers are doing their best to allow citizens to express their Second Amendment rights, but in situations like the protest and shooting, it's challenging to know who the bad guy is. This is especially true as Texas has recently enacted laws allowing the open carry of handguns on public college campuses. Dallas's mayor suggested creating legislation that would ban open carry during large events. And you write, and this is very important, that police aren't the only ones grappling with this issue of open carry and citizens with guns. One of your sources said fire and EMS first responders are basically helpless when dealing with armed citizens. What else did he say? I spoke with a firefighter in Florida, which is a concealed carry state, and he explained that first responders typically aren't allowed to carry guns on the job. He noted that as first responders, firefighters and EMS personnel encounter mentally unstable people who might pull a gun on them. Their only course of action is to stage a few blocks away and call the police. He told me it's also concerning because first responders in Florida have recently begun to take a more active role in active shooter situations and will follow armed police into the crime scene to assist victims while officers clear the area. There's a push to allow at least one member of every crew to carry a gun if they've had formal training. The first responder I spoke to noted that they don't want to make a judgment of who they should engage with. It's strictly a self-defense scenario. Lily, thanks for stopping by and talking to us about this issue that is definitely an ongoing one. It sure is. Thanks, Holly. When the Republican National Committee chose Cleveland, Ohio to host its 2016 convention, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame had to make big preparations for the main event. Paul Steiner, CPP, security manager at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum, is here to talk about the security preparations for the RNC in July. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good afternoon. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks again so much for being here. You write that a lot of preparation went into hosting the 2016 Republican National Convention, and one can only imagine how much work there was to do beforehand. So what were some of the pre-planning stages and steps that you all took to get ready for the convention? 
I guess the first thing that came to mind is we just didn't know. You know, these conventions are held every four years. There's two of them, obviously, and they're in different places, so it's not like you learn how to do it and then you're great at it and they come back in four years and you do it again. You just dust off everything and pull it back out, update it, and do it again. It's a complete and total learning experience because you just don't know what to expect. So the first thing we had to do was gather as much information as we could. And we were lucky in that there were a couple of groups that put together training programs that brought in people that had participated in the prior convention in 2012 in Tampa. And they were really helpful with telling us what they experienced and how they went through the preparation process and all those kinds of things, which really helped guide us. And and the first thing we realized was, you know, we got to find out what this means to us. So the Secret Service showed up here in October of 15 and started doing all their site surveying, and that's a very extensive process for them. And as I said in the article, we spent over 80 hours in the the months leading up to the convention working with the Secret Service and FEMA and a bunch of other different federal and state local organizations, touring the building, getting them familiar with the building. So every time one of them came out, we started asking questions and they were very open with what they could be and then when they couldn't be they were honest enough to say listen I can't talk about that which was really helpful because it narrowed down the uncertainty for us and we were able to start building a picture of what was going to happen and what our role was going to be in it. We early on started building a security plan because um, we wanted to get ahead of the game. I knew that as we got closer time was going to become a much more valuable commodity than it was in November in June. It would be much more So we wanted to get our plan done, written, published, ready to go as soon as possible. So the different agencies came out, and we toured with them, and we had asked them questions, and they would ask us questions. And it seemed like every time they came out, there was something different. And it got frustrating. And at one point, I asked one of the agents, I mean, what's up with this? When are you going to lock things in? And the agent kind of chuckled and said, well, our unofficial motto is, he who plans first plans twice. And we found out that that was very true, that it's amazing how much things shift and change in getting ready for an event like this. Uh, What was a sure thing one week becomes yesterday's news the next week. And we went through a couple of things, events we were expecting to have here and so on that ended up not happening. And so although we had written our plan early, the other thing we learned was, you know, your plan is your plan and it's a great plan, but be prepared to flex with it and make sure it's flexible enough that you can change as needed. How did you go about laying out a security plan for the RNC? What were some of the biggest concerns and challenges? Yeah, so the first thing we did was we took a look at our, our day-to-day security plan. And we have a very good plan. And we're not a stranger to large-scale events. We hold the inductions here every three years. And that's a massive undertaking. We have you know, world-famous rock stars that come here for our induction. So we had a pretty good plan. And we've got a very good staff that has been there and done that. We have all kinds of people that just show up. We have political leaders just show up. We have our inductions. So we're familiar with handling both highly sensitive visits and large-scale 
visits. So we took our plan and we took a look at it. And then we started thinking about what we had learned and what we were learning about what was going to happen to the RNC. And, and most of the plan was more than adequate to meet what we expected with some modifications and some tweaks. So once we started writing the plan, our base was our existing plan, as I said. And then we started looking at some of the things that we don't normally do. We train people on it, but we don't normally do it. And we're not used to having 10 VIPs show up at once and they're all needing something from us. We're used to two or three showing up. So we started looking at our, the way we trained our staff. We started looking at the way we were staffing or would be staffed for the event. And we decided we needed to expand some of the things we trained the staff on. Maybe not expand, but refocus them on some other stuff. CBRNE, for instance. Obviously, we do instruct the staff on that, but it's not as in-depth as it needed to be for this specific event. As an example, and there were others, the way we escorted people in and out of the building and how we screened visitors coming. We don't normally block off the front of our plaza like we did. We had a perimeter set up with bike racks, and the bike racks, they have a very rock and roll feel, so that was a comfortable thing for us to use. And we also then branded them with banners, and we set up three entry control points where we would bring all the visitors through those entry control points and we would do bag checks and metal wanding. If we have a known threat, those are some of the things we would do. So the staff is aware of them, they know what we need to do, but we've never done it on that scale. So a lot of it was taking what we do now and scaling it up to this specific event, which was, I think the last time I heard, it was 62,000 people that came to Cleveland for this, although I'm sure that number is probably low, but uh, Cleveland was full. So having to take all those people that came to the Rock Hall, not all 62,000, but many thousand a day would come to the Rock Hall, and we'd have to be able to effectively and quickly process them in through our entry control point so that they could visit the museum. And one of the things that we learned was that every moment of every day for a delegate was pretty much controlled. So if in their schedule they had two hours to visit the Rock Hall, that's what they had. And the ability for them to stay longer if they wanted to was pretty limited because their days were still with meetings and so on. So we would have to be able to get them into the building as quickly as possible so they'd have the most time here to enjoy the museum as they could have. I'm curious what the various aspects of training were that occurred at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ahead of the RNC, and how did it differentiate, if at all, from your normal training? Well, when we looked at what we were doing for training the staff, we felt that we were doing a good job. But again, like I said earlier, we needed to expand some of the areas. We needed to go beyond just an awareness for the staff, you know, they're all aware of CBRNE. They're all aware of that. And, and they know they know that, okay, if, if a package comes and there's powder or liquid leaking out of it, you need to just leave it alone and call for help. But we needed to build on that. We needed to make sure that they knew more than just the outlines. We did a couple of things. The first thing we did is we came up with daily trading topics. So every morning at the beginning of our day, we have a, a shift meeting of the folks that are working during the day when we're open to the public. And and what I did was I went and I found 90, 95 topics. And they were everything from things in the security manual to helping people who have disabilities get evacuated from the museum. How do you do that? What are the considerations? What are the concerns? You know, firefighting, types of fire extinguishers. But we, we came up with about 95 topics. So every morning before 
before we start our day, we have a meeting, and we sit down in that meeting, and we cover one of these topics. And they're designed to take about five to ten minutes, giving me adequate time to go over it or whoever the supervisor is leading the shift that day, and also give the guys and gals in the department a chance to ask questions. And a lot of times, they'll start talking about it, and it's like, oh, that's a good idea. We need to incorporate that, or that topic would be a good separate topic. So it builds on itself. The, the folks in the department really enjoy it. It's something every day that they get to have a chance to go ahead and get that exposure to that topic. The other thing we did was we looked at the way we were training our staff. We have a security manual. We'd go over the security manuals with them. We'd assign them to work with the training officer, and then we'd get back with them and talk to them and, and have a feeling on how well they got it and how well they were progressing in learning the job. And while that certainly worked, we decided we wanted to formalize it a little more, so we came up with competency checklists. We took every task and broke it down into its component elements, you know, step one, step two, step three, and so on. And then we would have the training officer go over each task with each individual using that checklist. That way, we knew everyone was getting the exact same training. The training officer and the security officer both sign off on an acknowledgement sheet saying, yes, I got this training and I understand it. And then we'll go back quarterly. We go back and we have a training meeting with the staff and we go over one quarter of the training checklists every quarter so that they all get it once a year. How are the decisions made about actual security staffing for the event? The staffing was hard because you don't want to have too many people. You don't want people just standing around doing nothing. But then you know, the other side of that is if you really need those people, you don't want to be trying to grab them the morning of. So we looked at our staffing and we went with what would be nice to have? What do we need in the worst case? So we sat down and we reviewed what we were doing or what we expected we would be doing. We looked at where do we need staff to assist in those things. And then, you know, obviously we don't staff on a day-to-day basis for that kind of numbers or the kinds of activities that were going on during the RNC. So we engaged an outside company to help us uh, fill in our staff needs. And they, in fact, handled most of the screening for us because we had three entry control points. Each entry control point had two lanes, and in each lane you had a person that checked bags, you had a person that did the metal detector, and then you needed someone that would act in a supervisory role so that if something was in a bag and, and the person doing the screening wasn't sure if it was acceptable or not, they could turn to the supervisor who we worked with ahead of time to determine what those items would be, and then they could make a decision. So all of it was event-driven. What do we expect to happen, and who do we need to make that happen? And we ended up hiring for the RNC about 25 outside contract security officers, and then we boosted our own staff by about seven. Then we took the staff and we put them on 12-hour shifts because that allowed us to have the most staff here at any one time. Our expectations were that we would be busy from about 7 a.m. to 2 a.m. So that was quite a bit longer than our normal hours. Normally, we open at 10 a.m., and although we have security staff here 24-7, we don't have a full shift here. We don't have as many people when we're open at 7 a.m. as we do at 10 a.m. So we needed the extra folks. We were expecting parties, meetings, breakfasts, events, going from 7 o'clock in the morning until 2 a.m. in the morning. So finally, tell us how the RNC events all turned out. Were there any lessons learned? The convention for us turned out to be great. We were we were trained, we were staffed, and we were ready. We had 44 events from Monday to 
Thursday at the Rock Hall. And normally in that time frame, we might have on a really busy week five or six. So that was a huge number for us. Most of them were in the morning and then afternoon and then into the evening. Um, as you know, the RNC is a kind of a prime time event. I think it starts at 7 and would go to 11. So during that time, we didn't have a lot going on. But as soon as the convention ended for the night, we would have parties here. Then we would have parties during the day. So we were very successful as far as being able to fill the building and just have a lot of really good events here. Some of the other things that happened was we learned working with the Secret Service turned out to be a lot easier than we had expected it to be. They were very open with us and they were very willing to help us with whatever was going on. If we had a question, I just had to pick up the phone and call my site agent. If he did didn't have an answer right then. He got me an answer within a couple of hours. Some of the, the, the welcoming event was down in the North Coast Harbor area that included us, the Great Lakes Science Center, and Voinovich Park. And it was a huge event. 10, 11,000 people came. I believe was the last count I saw. And it was an NSSE area, so we were all fenced in. I had to go through security, bag checks, security checks to get in. They spent the night before inspecting the buildings doing a complete security sweep, everything from dogs to technological means to sweep the building. So we learned how to work with them, and that really was a key. We had such a good relationship with them. You know, the Secret Service, they have their own set policies and procedures, and they're very important, and they're all, I'm sure, came about because of lessons learned. But at the same time, you know, we're a different and distinct organization, and we can't always do what they want us to do. And we were able to meet with them and explain some of the things. And because we were able to explain explain to them the way we operate, and they were able to explain to us what they needed to accomplish, we were able to come up with compromises in that we found a different way to do what they needed to do than they might normally do it, and that was really helpful for us. The other thing is you're out there, 95-degree days. We had all of these folks out on our exterior plaza, and there's not a lot of shade out there. We had tents up so people could be under the tents, but it was a long day for everyone, and you couldn't be in every place at, at every minute, and you have to really train your staff, get them ready, and then trust them to do what they need to do, and, and they did. They stepped right up, and they made good decisions, and uh, everything they did was what we needed to have done to be successful. Thanks again so much for joining us, Paul. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed being here. That does it for this month's podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud so that you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to leave us a review on either of these sites. As a reminder, be sure to check back with us for bonus material throughout the month. Thanks again for tuning into this episode, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.